Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. to Nightlight. Thank you so much for sharing so much of your evening with us. We really are looking forward to putting on a show tonight that, that is going to be very exciting. At least it is for me. And beforehand, though, I want to thank Ken Quiethawk for his amazing intro. He and his wife have an amazing, amazing website uh, called Native Storytellers, and they are just that. Uh, please check it out because it's how a lot of the Native Americans uh, or first people, or whatever their term is, which is appropriate at this point in time, how they kept history, how they told their mythology, how they gave their their culture, their children, a sense of a foundation from which they came. It's it's absolutely important that we know that. And you know, again, another reason for tonight's show, among other things. So um, check it out. It's an amazing website, and I really think that. It's an important part of of understanding where we came from because once we know where we came from, um, it gives us a firmer foundation from from which to go from whatever direction we're supposed to go in. My guest tonight is Dr. Greg Little, and I am so very excited having him on tonight because um, he, along with Andrew Collins, have co-authored an amazing book called Denisovan Origins. Hybrid Humans, Gobekli Tepe, and the Genesis of the Giants of Ancient America. I know it's a big title, but it does cover all of those areas and gives you so much more. It's amazing. Their book chronicles the profound influence of the Denisovans and their hybrid descendants upon the flowering of human civilization around the world. It traces the migrations of the sophisticated Denisovans and their interbreeding with Neanderthals and early human populations more than 40,000 years ago and shows how Denisovan hybrids became the elite of ancient societies, including the Adena mound-building culture. Their book also explores the Denisovans' extraordinary advances, including precision machine stone tools and jewelry, tailored clothing, and celestially aligned architecture, and and helps to fill you in on understanding that that those that came before us uh, 
we're not as we have been taught, and there is so much more about them that we should learn and know about and, and appreciate. Greg is a psychologist turned explorer and documentary maker since 2003. Greg and his wife, Laura, have been actively searching the Bahamas for archaeological ruins that might be linked to Atlantis. He works, he's been working with the Edgar Casey organization in its search for the Atlantis project. Along with archaeologist Bill Donato, the Littles have conducted wide explorations around Bimini, Andros, and the Great Bahamas Bank. Their explorations have been featured on the National Geographic Channel, the Learning Channel, MSNBC, Sci-Fi, Discovery, and the History Channel. And he is co-author of the books um, Edgar Casey's Atlantis, a strong recommendation from me on that one, Mound Builders, Ancient South America, and People of the Web, and has over 30 other books in print in various areas of psychology. So with a cumulus vitus like that, um, it is impressive that, that he's come to the show, and I'm so grateful. Uh, welcome to the show, Greg. It's so great to have you here. Well, thank you. I uh, appreciate it very much, and uh, it's a pleasure to be back. And maybe someday we'll, we'll get a chance to talk about all that Atlanta stuff, but that's <laughs> I think we'll hold that in abeyance and talk about something else. Well, we have done a show on Atlantis, and I highly recommend people um, read your book on Atlantis because it is, in my mind, the finest book that's been written on it. Well, thank and, you. Um, and I've read it more than once, and I, I intend to go back again because it is so enlightening. And, and everything you write is very enlightening. I spoke earlier to you about how, had I known you when I was in biology in high school, though I think I'm older, um, I would have understood nuclear DNA and mitochondrial DNA far better than, than I did at the time, which would explain why I didn't pass biology. Um, <laughs> but, well, they really didn't know a great that w- Go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, well, no, as you were saying, uh, you know, back in ancient history when I was in high school, they didn't know that much about it. So <laughs> That's true. It and it, be, biology and genetics have come so far, and it is uh, it is progressing so rapidly that information is out of date within a year now. So it's, it's really hard to keep up with it. Uh, and in truth, I don't think when I was in uh, college, I don't believe that they really knew the role of like the mitochondria and mitochondrial DNA uh, like they do now. And it's, it's uh, linked to the reason that it was really studied it has to do with uh, human diseases like diabetes and too much weight gain and insulin resistance and all that. But we'll get to that, I think, at some point. Uh, so happy okay, Columbus well, Day to you. I'll start with that. Yes. Yes, to you as well. You you had mentioned that you know, and and I I actually didn't recognize the fact that we we were um, booked on Columbus Day either. So um, kind of interesting well, because you know it's it's linked to the Americas and our history as well. Yes, uh, the book, my part of that book, uh, and I'm going to call them Denisovans. Uh, no one really knows what they call okay. themselves. The the Denisovans or the Denisovans were first identified as a new branch of humanity, similar a branch in the same way that the Neanderthals are like us. Uh, but uh-huh. they were discovered in a cave in Siberia in the Altai Mountains of Russia, and a monk by the name of Denis lived in the cave, and so uh-huh. it was called the Cave of Denis. 
And so the archaeologists, they often name new discoveries after the location uh, or the exact place where the things were found. So it, they became as they became known as the Denisovans, or it, it's fine with me if you call them Denisovans. Andrew prefers Denisovans. Uh, that's basically what I say, and Andrew insists that's the real pronunciation, but I don't really know, and I know they didn't <laughs> call themselves that. But so no. uh, let's let's talk just for a minute about what my section of that book was, and, and just let me deal with this little bit about uh, Columbus Day that I want to say. Columbus Day, sure. of course, is a ce- supposedly a celebration of when Christopher Columbus first arrived into the Americas, uh, and this uh, this is in the book. Uh, and when Columbus came to the Americas, he never set foot in North America. Uh, Columbus landed in what we today know as the Bahamas. Uh, on a subsequent trips, he landed in Cuba and went to a few other islands in the Caribbean, but he never made it to North America. Uh, but Columbus supposedly discovered the Americas. He's given that credit. You know, the story that we learned, I learned the 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 poem in elementary school, I suspect you did too, in 1492, oh, yeah. Columbus sailed the ocean blue. Well, he, he called them Indians because he was trying to find a way to India, of course, and he thought he'd reach the West Indies, the western part of India. So that's why the Caribbean was called the West Indies, and that's why Native Americans were called Indians, and yes, he's credited as discovering it. Now, Native Americans uh, scoff at that as well they should. He stumbled yes. into a place that uh, he didn't really know where he was. There were people here, and how many people were here is relevant. It is, it is very well known and established that in the Americas, at the time got, Columbus got here, there were at least 56 million people. Now, that's a lot of people. That's the minimum number. It could have been as many as 100, and, 100 to 150 million. Nobody knows for sure, but it's at least 56 million. That's the minimum amount that uh, today they believe the, people, that the number of people that were here then. So mm-hmm. Columbus and, and later explorers, and they weren't all explorers. They're often called that, but the conquistadors, uh, the people that were looking for gold and silver, uh, those who were looking for conquest, those who were who were coming in to settle, they brought in diseases, and they wiped out over 90% of the natives. They wiped out virtually 100% in most of the Caribbean islands. They wiped out 90, 90 to 95% of the Native Americans in North America. Des, Hernando de Soto who made a three-year trek through the southeastern uh, part of America, and he made it all the way to Texas, uh, they mm-hmm. uh, probably, DeSoto and his people, probably wound up killing uh, 30 or 40 million people through diseases because the Native Americans had no resistance whatsoever to certain flus, things like smallpox, chickenpox, and so on. There were a variety of other diseases that were brought over. So what I want to pose is this. Uh, I've thought a great deal about it. I am part Native American. I'm not, I can't identify as Native American because it's just a very little part. Lots of people mm-hmm. are part Native American. But let's pretend for a second that Christopher Columbus never discovered America and that none of the other explorers ever came over here. And nobody came in in 1492, and now 2,000 years later, here we are. Would Mm -hmm. no one have ever found the Americas? 
would all the rest of the world be using electricity and cars and planes and boats uh, and perhaps going into space or, you know, whatever, whatever they do, uh, mm-hmm. the rest of the world would have gone ahead and progressed. Sooner or later, someone would have stumbled upon the Americas, and they would have, even if they'd been friendly, even if they had been very friendly and traded with the natives, uh, not didn't kill a single one, the Holocaust that occurred probably would have occurred anyway because they still didn't have the immunity to any of the modern diseases that we carry. So one way or another, it was almost like destiny in that this incredible civilization in the Americas, if it wasn't going to be destroyed by actual war and conquest, which uh, Central and South America really were more so than North America. But North America was destroyed by diseases. And I'm talking about the ancient people were. It probably would have happened anyway. But uh, I can't say there's any great reason to celebrate Columbus. It's a good day for kids to get off of school. Uh, And I know some places celebrated as Native American Day, uh, and I'm perfectly happy with that. Uh, but I actually posed that in the earlier book that I did back in 2014 called Path of Souls uh, mm-hmm. and talked about it in there because it probably would have happened. And I don't know if it's any better dying of a disease that you get from a friend or dying of a disease that you get from an enemy. Uh, either way, you're dead. I'm not sure in a, maybe a larger cosmic sense which is better. I don't know. <laughs> Uh, but the truth is it probably would have happened anyway, friend or foe. Uh, so that's really what I wanted to say about it on here on Columbus Day. Uh, I suspect not many people are out there celebrating uh, Christopher <laughs> Columbus anyway. Uh, Native well, Americans well, do. Yeah, Native Americans are more aware of it <clears throat> than the general population is. Okay, so that kind of ends that, it, and I guess we're on. Well, yeah, but if you read – if you read about Christopher Columbus, you know, the more you know about him, the less you want to celebrate it. Well, that's true. That may be true <laughs> of a lot of people too, that the more we know about him, the less we want to we want to celebrate yeah. him. He was no, he was a uh anybody who is trying to uh do it for fame and glory and money, probably the more you know about him, the less you want to know. That's my guess. Absolutely. Well, back to the Denisovans. Um Yes. I think I think the the one thing that that fascinated me most, um, well, no, it all fascinated me to be honest with you. Um, let's just go back to the fact that most people have learned in school about, you know, how how supposedly the human species came into being, and at this point in time, I would say that most probably North America is further behind than most other countries in understanding that. That's true. Our history is not, our archaeological history is not nearly as well developed as it is anywhere else in the world. That is absolutely true. And and what bothers me the most about it is that um, it's a shame because there's so much evidence here that, that, you know, because of, well, first of all, the Smithsonian and then the, the, fact that we had to re- we have to repatriate any bones that are dug up means that we can't study them so that so that our grasp of of 
the ancient cultures that were here is is so much less than that um, in in South America or or certainly over in in Europe and, and Asia. That you're absolutely correct. Uh, things so, changed rapidly here after 1990, but before that, American archaeologists had their a very set opinion about what had happened. I'm talking about North American archaeologists, I have to say that, yeah. because archaeologists in South America call themselves American archaeologists, too. Uh, most people yeah. in, in the United States think America means this, but to them in the South, no. They believe they're Americans, too, because it's the American continent. Uh, but they Absolutely. have a completely different view that most of us up north here have never heard <laughs> or not aware of, and it's scoffed at by in colleges, um, the professors of archaeology around the country, almost all of whom are older white males. And I have to, I confess, I am an older white male. I can't help it. I'm not ashamed of it, but I have to acknowledge it. But most of the mm-hmm. professors are older white males. They were trained in North American universities. They look down upon South American universities. They look down upon Latin American archaeology, and most of the archaeologists in South America are Hispanic. They're female. They publish in Latin American journals that are in Spanish, and they have a completely different look at history. They believe South America was settled first, and it was settled a long, long time ago. And North Mm -hmm. American archaeologists don't even want to acknowledge or put it in textbooks that, oh, well, those South Americans believe this, but no, we think they're wrong. They won't even put it in the textbooks. But all you got to do is look into South American archaeology, and you discover very quickly that they believe North American archaeologists are horribly biased against them. And I, I didn't realize that until around the year 1999 or so when we were doing a book on South America, and I started reading some of the South American journals, I could not believe what I was seeing. So they oh, have a absolutely. different view. Well, it, and you look at, you know, I, I well, I taught school. Yeah. And, and um, you know, I, I stupidly um, sort of... Uh, reiterated to my students what I had been taught and you know I was very young at the time now it wouldn't happen but um you know we taught we taught children that when when the Europeans arrived here there were just little clusters of native americans and yes. you know and and that there was no huge society here or cosmology or or sense of religion or or spirituality not religion spirituality and you know that they were just very primitive and they didn't understand and therefore we tried to educate them but uh you know not everybody took to the education and those that didn't took well they died but yeah. that's not true and, no it's not and 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 it it just it horrifies me that children today and, and it's the same today they're still teaching the same thing yeah well so, they they so. teach that they were uh they believed in animism and animism mm-hmm. is the, supposedly the most primitive type of a spirituality, that you think everything is alive, a rock is alive, and that is not what they really believed. It wasn't a type mm-hmm. of animism. But the other thing, they, taught, they, they say, oh, they were sun worshipers. They worship the sun less than people who go out and lay on the beach to get a suntan. They simply oh, yeah. at 
that it's not a worship of the sun. They saw spirituality everywhere, uh, yeah. and they they held everything, even animals. You'll see, even in the old films, they depicted this, although the people who made the films didn't understand why. But they depicted that when they would shoot an animal like a deer to consume or eat, to stay alive, before after they killed the deer, they would kneel over it and they would pray over it. And they would pray mm-hmm. for the spirit of the deer. Uh, and so that's that's literally what they did. Now, they believed everything had some spirituality to it, even the rocks, even the soil. And that has to do with mounds and why they what they did in their death journey. But they saw mm-hmm. everything contained a spiritual nature. And ultimately, everything went back to a single source, that everything was connected and it went back in time to a single source. And so mm-hmm. that that was probably a little more complex uh, than what uh, most of us have, were taught, and it was more complex than what the early ethnographers who talked to them came to understand. And, of course, mm-hmm. their goal, the goal of the early explorers, in addition to getting any gold and silver that w- was here, was to convert them all to Christianity or to get rid of them because they were pagans if they didn't accept Christianity. Right. So the, well, a lot of that information has been lost. They kept it secret on purpose. Uh, but today we know a great deal more about it for, for several reasons. Uh, but anyway, uh, it's all what we have learned about Native Americans and history. I'm talking about white people who went to white schools uh, those of us that are European who went to usual high schools and elementary schools in the United States of America, what we learned is not really true. And today they teach next to nothing anyway. It's pretty much ignored, and today uh, a lot of history begins with the civil rights movement. And I'm not saying yeah. that's wrong. I'm just saying that But we still ignore most of the Native American history, which goes back probably – Two to three hundred thousand years. Now, granted, it's not written down, and we don't know all of that. Although we're beginning to know a lot more about it. Well, you you bring up a great point here, and and for the Denisovians, Denisovans, um, let's let's explain to people just um, who they were and where we and how they were. Um, Tagged as another um, species of humans. Yeah, another branch of humanity. Okay. Okay, so so, uh, go ahead. No, so so take us back to where we learned about them, and then we'll bring them to the Americas. Okay. Well, initially, this this place that I mentioned earlier that's in Siberian Asia, uh, that is actually, it's in Russia, and it's in the Altai Mountains. So there's a cave there. And archaeologists got interested in the cave uh, after locals told them about it, and they started digging down. Uh, they, they, as they dug down, they found lots of habitation layers, but eventually they got down, and I believe it's around 80,000 years ago at the 80,000 level, and they, started, they recovered a, uh, a finger bone and a tooth and then another tooth and then a few more little pieces of bone. And it was before that, a layer 
that they'd hit before they got this finger bone, they recovered what was clearly Neanderthal remains. So what they then did was with our incredible technology that we have today in genetics that has only existed for 15, 20 years or so, they took these truly ancient bones and they ran them through genetic sequencing, which means they're getting the entire genetic code out of the bones. And lo and behold, once they did the entire sequence, they found that these are not modern humans and these were not Neanderthals. They are a totally different branch of humanity. Now, since then, they have found more remains of, of the Denisovans. Uh, they have found some in China. Uh, there are several other places where they now have recovered them, and almost every day there's something else coming out about them. But they know now that they probably started, that, that is, they evolved, I'll have to use that word here, probably around 700 to 800,000 years ago. So this mm -hmm. branch of humanity evolved seven to 800,000 years ago, and it was around the same time that there was a different branch of humanity that we know as the Neanderthals. Now, the Neanderthals and the Denisovans apparently lived in the same places, and they interbred, and eventually they interbred with thoroughly modern humans. And here's how we know it. They have recovered bones that they found a female who was half Neanderthal and half Denisovan. And okay. since, since all this has been found, they have tested a lot of humans and human DNA, which is pretty easy to do anymore. Actually, it's, it's incredible, but it's still relatively easy. Uh, and they have found that many of us carry quite a bit of Denisovan DNA in us, which means our ancestors long, long ago interbred with some Denisovans. And so we carry some of that DNA. Now, a lot of their DNA is in a lot of Native American tribes, modern Native American tribes, uh, and it's in a lot of places in the South Pacific, such as Australia, New Zealand, uh, Melanesia, some of the Micronesia Islands, Polynesia, and so on. So their DNA is still influencing us today. In fact, Modern autism, autistic children may in fact be carrying a lot of Denisovan DNA in them. Uh, and this is like a brand new area of research. Don't know the answer to that yet. It's somewhat speculative, but we know that the, that the Denisovans themselves had a lot of uh, autistic characteristics, and that shows in their DNA. So these people, although we look at them as they're really old, and most people are going to think of them as cavemen, they're not. They mm -hmm. tailored clothing. They made clothing. They made beautiful jewelry, which they polished out of gemstones, various really nice stones. Uh, they could drill uh, perfectly fine holes in these stones, which they could hang uh, small pieces of metal and things off of them. So they adorned themselves in jewelry. Uh, they made cave paintings and they were just far more advanced than anyone has ever given these ancient humans credit for. Uh, they were probably physically large. We know that from, from uh, early research with the Denisovans. Andrew speculated on that back in 2014 in a book that we did. But since then, 
uh, geneticists have now said that, okay, they do appear to have been very large and, and very robust, which means their, their height and their size is proportionate. They're not tall and skinny, in other words. These are very mm-hmm. big and powerful people, but they were also very, very smart. That's quite clear. So their DNA has been passed along for hundreds of thousands of years in the interbreeding with modern humans. Now, where they went, why they disappeared is not clear. Uh, We believe that probably they had some descendants who carried on in the human race uh, as modern humans dominated, Modern humans probably, in fact, killed off the Neanderthals and probably killed off the remaining Denisovans, too, the pure Denisovans and pure Neanderthals. And that probably occurred somewhere around 45,000 years ago to 25,000 years ago in pockets of them. Uh, So why that occurred, again, we don't know, but we know they interbred with them for quite a while. So that's, that's kind of the background of Denisovans. Uh, And almost every day there's a new report coming out of some of their remains found because what's going on is all around the world now you have archaeologists or paleontologists who who have dug in caves who are going back to places where they found things maybe 50, 100, 200,000 years ago, and they're starting to dig deeper and they're starting to find things. And they are going back and reexamining skeletal remains that were found years ago, but nobody had any idea what they were. And that's what happened in China. They found a very large uh, part of a skull, and mainly the jaw, which was which was very oversized. Uh, and it turned mm-hmm. out to be Denisovan. And that was just, uh, I think it was less than a month ago that that was found. And we actually sent okay. in the book for publication almost a year ago. So, So that opens up an amazing question, where did they come from? Well, who knows? Uh, call it <laughs> evolution. Uh, we don't. In, in the book, uh, what you'll see are a few Native American traditions about where they come from. Uh, in fact, mm-hmm. we are uh, – Andrew and I are going to put out a book probably in about a year. We just agreed to this that will have some of these um, ideas about how the universe started and where humans came from, from Native Americans. But um, we didn't. We don't mention ancient aliens in it. We don't mention uh, genetic manipulation by aliens. That's not in it. Uh, I don't think the word evolution is actually used in the book either. Uh, I can't imagine that it's in there anywhere. But they simply emerged. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I think I think that the the element of you know alien intervention is something that has been made up because we didn't have any other explanation for it. Yes, and other than evolution. It, and people don't understand yeah. evolution anyway. Well, okay, so so that's where we see the first example of them. How did they – see, the, the, the cool thing is um, most people, you know, common, common the, theory is that the first people came across the land bridge from Asia. But – but now, with with the discovery of of this this new species, um, and the fact that it is in the Americas, as as in, in in huge clusters in several places, so how did these people get to this continent? Well, there was a when you were in school and when I was in school, we were taught that the that America 
all the Americas, the people that were here, all came over at the same time. And back Mm -hmm. when I was in school, they told us it was around uh, 11,000 B.C. or so, or Mm 12,000 B.C., and that they all came from Siberian Asia at the end of the last ice age when a land bridge opened through the ice between Siberia and Alaska. And then these hordes came walking in, and they were called, they became known as the Clovis people, and that that became known as Clovis I, which archaeologists themselves have called the holy writ of American archaeology. So the Clovis people came into North America. They eventually ran all the way down to South America by 9,000 B.C. or so, uh, and they populated it. And that's where it all started. And that it was a very elegant theory in a way. Uh, At that time, we know there were horses. There were two species of elephants in the Americas. There were giant ground sloth and lots of other giant dangerous creatures. And so the idea has long been that the Clovis people were efficient hunters, and they just killed them all. They killed them Mm -hmm. all by (laughs) roughly 10,000 B.C. or 10,800 B.C., and all of those creatures died, and that was that, because the Clovis culture then just disappeared, and then other cultures took over. That was the original theory, and that theory was dominant from ni- roughly 1927 or 32, depending on which date you want to accept. So from roughly 1930 all the way to 1997, and there are still almost 70 years, there are still people today who believe in Clovis first. The National Geographic, they're archaeologists. The Geographic calls them Clovis holdouts, and they just mm-hmm. think that all the other evidence is wrong. Something is wrong. That's what they believe. But that theory, the Clovis First theory, literally collapsed in 1997, and it collapsed because of a find in South America. And it took a group of American archaeologists going to a site in South America called Monte Verde in Chile. And they realized, okay, they were down here 2,000 years before Clovis. Therefore, something is wrong in our ideology And immediately, archaeologists started going back to sites all around the country. And here's the weird thing. This archaeology calls itself a science. It does use scientific methods, but it's based on belief. Everything they do is based upon their pre-existing beliefs. So in the past, when archaeologists were doing excavations, and when they hit what is called the Clovis layer, which is roughly roughly 11,000, 12,000 B.C., and they would find Clovis points or they would find pieces of stone that are part of the Clovis toolkit, they would simply stop. And in quotes from some of them, they say, well, there's no reason to look further because we know there can't be anything there because nobody was here before Clovis. It would just be a waste of our time and effort to dig more. It's kind of like looking for, you know, you always find something in the last place you look. That's the stupid Mm -hmm. joke, you know, and it's because once you find it, you don't look anymore. So they knew Clovis was the earliest. When they found Clovis, there's no use going further. So they started going back to Clovis sites, and they just started digging again, going deeper. And lo and behold, many, many sites started turning up human artifacts at 
15,000 years ago, 20,000 years ago, 30,000 years ago. Uh, there is a site in South Carolina that goes back now to at least 50,000 years. And the reason they can't say that it goes back further is because all they've done is carbon dating, and carbon dating can only go back 50,000 years. Uh, eventually, they'll do um, either uh, luminescence or they'll do uranium-thorium dating, but they haven't done that yet. But in South America, for well, since the 70s, South American archaeologists never stopped at that 10,000 B.C. layer. They have found evidence of habitation far, far earlier. So in South America, the belief which we have now, and that's, that's one of the things we say in the book, the first people came to the Americas via what is called a southern route. And the southern route is from like New Zealand and Australia and Melanesia and Micronesia, they simply took boats and they went along the currents and the winds and they skirted along the coast of Antarctica. And if you actually did that in a boat, you would turn north when you hit the coast of South America, when you hit the western coast, and you would go right up the coast of Chile. And so uh -huh. that is what, that's what South American archaeologists actually decades ago say were the first Americans. People did that. And the evidence is very clear. That is probably what occurred. And it could have been as long ago as 300,000 years, which means it could not have been thoroughly modern humans, which are Homo sapiens sapiens. It could not have been thoroughly modern humans. It had to be. And that's why American archaeologists rejected it. They said, well, you know, you can't go back 300,000 years because there weren't modern humans then. And we know Neanderthals couldn't do anything. And, of course, they didn't know about the Denisovans. Uh, they just didn't have the ability. They've always said, oh, they can't build boats. They can't build rafts. They can't do anything. They just stay wherever they are. And they look down upon these, these old cultures. But we know now that they probably did come into South America. And we know that not only from the archaeology but from the genetics. There's a huge amount of genetic evidence that shows that people in South America came from the South Pacific. Uh, so that that's just one piece of it. And I know I'm kind of like a, a slot machine. You can put a nickel in and you'll get 50 cents out. Um, and I can talk <laughs> endlessly on this. So I don't want to. I don't want to just keep rambling. <laughs> oh, you're not rambling. That's you know that that was the point I wanted to take. So there wasn't, and and there probably were those that walked over the land bridge too but they also well we know that for sure too the genetics are very yeah. clear on it there were there were many intrusions into the ancient americas and ancient america was truly a melting pot there were probably uh -huh. people that came into south america 300,000 years ago more came in around 100,000 years ago uh, more groups came in 50,000 years ago and then they all in all into the south and then in the north, and some of those people went north, and uh, they occupied the southwest of America, and they were all here when the land bridge opened, and that opened now, they know, as early as around 30,000 years ago. So from about mm -hmm. 30,000 years to 25,000 years ago, the Siberian nomads came in. We know they came in again probably around 15,000 years ago, and they simply merged with the people that were already here. But none of them were the Clovis people, and that brings us then to the, the people called the Salutrians. So the Clovis people actually was just a – probably was a group 
of 150 to probably no more than 500 people that came into the Americas from, and I hate to use the word, but I have to, they came from Europe, but it's only because they were Asians. They were Asians in origin who had migrated to the west from Asia, and they went into Europe, and then they went north and made a crossing, much like the Vikings did, and came into North America somewhere in Canada. And that was the Salutrians. And the Salutrians had made these really interesting spear points, which became known as Clovis. And because they had these spear points, and they were very, very efficient at killing the, the woolly mammoths and the mastodons and all of the other dangerous animals that were around, they were quickly incorporated into the groups that were already living here because there were already people here. And those Clovis people never – This a clue to this whole thing is Clovis never got past – well, the, old, the, the furthest south Clovis point ever found was in Panama. But basically the culture never really got past Mexico. Uh, apparently one or two people did make it to Panama, but that was it. They never went into South America. Yet they've always said, oh, well, they just decided they didn't need to make the Clovis points in South America. No, it wasn't that. It's that they just never got that far south. There were already people there. That is the answer. But archaeology wow. really doesn't like any of this. There are some people who are interested in it. There are some archaeologists that that actually secretly believe in a lot of this. But it just – there's a psychology in this. And I've said, imagine being a college professor, and for your entire career, 30, 40 years, you've been teaching Clovis first. You've told people that all this other stuff is nonsense, and then suddenly one piece of evidence after another after another emerges that says everything you've been teaching is wrong. And so for some people, some people would get depressed over it. But for some reason, academics just dig in and double down and say, no, all this contrary evidence is wrong. But it's really not. And in 20 years, uh, every, probably everything I'm saying now in 20 years will just be mainstream archaeology. That is my guess, well, it, but it will take it, that you long. Know, in a lot of cases, especially if you're a tenured person teaching anywhere, you you don't teach what you want to. You teach what the syllabus is. That's correct. And and if you don't teach it, you're out. Well, so, in archaeology too, you know, there's not much money. They don't make a uh -huh. lot of money, and there's not much grant money, and there's a great deal of competition for it. And if you go against the mainstream and apply for a grant, you're not going to get it because it's your peers that are deciding whether or not you're going to get the money, and it's your peers right. that decide whether or not you're going to get a promotion. And if you, it's almost like a cult. And I have written. That and I've I've threatened to do this and I may I, I don't know but archaeology <laughs> to me functions very much like a cult does. It is a science in a way because it utilizes the scientific method, but right. it fights outsiders that it has no reason to fight. Uh, and cults do that to maintain their belief system, and they rather viciously attack people. One of the reviews in our book. Uh, was came out by an archaeologist who works for the U.S. Forestry Service, and in the very first sentence of the of uh, his review, he said, "Well, our book is is horrible, terrible." I'm, th those are my words, but that's basically what he was saying. But he said because 
we say that Europeans came over and taught all the stupid Native Americans that were here how to build mounds. Now, our book doesn't say that at all. Our book says no. people in South America started building mounds first, and then they moved it up north. The evidence in that is clear. North American archaeologists have always claimed that mound building started in North America first and then went south into Central America and South America, but the evidence is t- it, it's, that's nonsense. And they even know today that's not true, so they don't talk about it much. The first mounds ever built in the Americas are built in Bolivia, of all places, uh, and they date to 8,400 B.C. or 10,400 years ago. And the all of South America had mounds, and Central America had mounds before any were even started in North America. Here, our oldest mound dates to 4,000 B.C., and that's a site called Monte Seno in Louisiana. Of course, that's my... That is my big area of expertise in all this is Indian mounds. So mounds mm-hmm. were started in South America, but the guy started his review with a blatant lie uh, that we and and he said, okay, they say they weren't really Europeans, but he was talking about the Salutrians. And yeah. our point wasn't that the Salutrians came over here and taught the people anything. They simply brought those points, those Clovis points, over here. That was it. Uh, and yes, they they were probably uh, they carried some Denisovan DNA because we know in North America, in particular, the mound building ancestors, which are like the Ojibwe uh, in the really the center of North America uh, toward Canada, they have a lot of Denisovan DNA, and there were mound builder cultures where there were some extremely large people that might as well be called giants because they were seven to eight feet tall, and they were the shaman mm-hmm. and they were the leaders. But again, that is another taboo talk to, uh, topic in mainstream archaeology, and they attack on that. They deny every single one of those and don't talk about the ones that were discovered by the archaeologists themselves. And now well, I am rambling Denis- a bit. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's, okay. it's, it's good. You open up great topics. The Denisovans um, were larger. They had a larger brain capacity. Okay, so I here's would... the thing. Initially, yeah. initially, Andrew speculated that they were larger because they had large teeth, uh, and other people speculated that too. Now, there is, uh, in fact, I got into the dental literature, the, the dental and medical literature shows that there's a, there's a clear correlation or relationship between the size of teeth and body size. Uh, and the correlation is on the, uh, if you know anything about statistics, it's like 0.7, uh, which is really very, very high. But there's a correlation. But that wasn't the only evidence. Uh, now, just recently, geneticists are simply admitting point blank that they carry uh, hereditary traits for tallness. They were very large people, and they are admitting it rather um, reluctantly. They're reluctantly admitting that the Denisovans clearly were a large and robust group. Now, they're not saying they were giants, uh, and to them they would say, yeah, they were probably six feet tall and perhaps more. Uh, and that's really what our argument is, that in the ancient, in this ancient world here, there was a group of people that were, had hereditary traits of, ha- of tallness that were somewhere between seven and eight feet, and loads of their skeletal remains were pulled out by the Smithsonian 
and others, and they were seen mm-hmm. by early explorers into and interacted with early explorers into South America and into the middle of America. Magellan, Sir Francis Drake, uh, Lord Byron, um, several admirals, and even uh, Charles Darwin. Uh, Darwin mm-hmm. was the last one to interact with them, and that was in 1831, and he wrote about it. But all that's ignored, and they say, oh, you can't believe any of these things because they all exaggerated. Uh, but all of those people, there's a whole long series of them, they found people seven to nine feet tall and interacted with them. They said there were loads of them. And so that they intermarried or they, they intermingled, um, whatever you want to call it. I, 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 I'm not so sure marriage was a thing, but, but they interbred with the, the whoever was indigenous there as they came in. And, and because of their height, I would think an intelligence, you know, they were they were put in positions of authority and yes. because they and because they were um I want to say wiser, but that's not it. A lot of them in 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 the burial mounds and of course um the only one, the ones that you found are are usually of shamans. Um Yes. So that, so that you know those who were just part of the troop didn't get that kind of burial. So that the only burials that you have are shamans, but that doesn't mean that those are the only positions that these Denisovans had within the grouping that they were that they were living in. Yes, I I, I understand exactly what you just said, and I'd say you're dead on correct. So we know that most Native Americans. And most of the ancient groups, and I, I'm, I like to just talk about the mound builders, and we can just as well okay. talk about the ones in South America too, because almost all of them, they didn't bury their dead. What they did, I mean, ultimately they did, of course, but they started by de- defleshing them, and they would put them up on a scaffolding, and they would allow birds, carrier carrion birds. Uh, to basically remove the flesh, and they would bundle the bones and keep them to a, to, at, to, till a specific time, and then they cremated them. They had these ceremonies, which we have called the rituals for the of the dead, and the path of souls ritual, and that's partly what these elite people who became the shaman and the leader of the tribes controlled this path of souls ritual. But they cremated them. The vast majority of remains of Native Americans were simply cremated, and that's why we haven't found huge burials of relatively uh, – well, we, some of the mounds have had lots of burials of, of people that were five to six feet tall, uh, which is uh-huh. pretty much normal. And But all of those were because of battles. Large groups of people may die, so they put huge groups in a mound and put a mound over them um, to to cover them quickly. But they cremated almost everyone, those who were in the tombs, lavish tombs, and they were primarily the Adena culture, uh, which goes back to about 1500 to 2000 B.C. or so. Um, The Adena culture put them in these lavish tombs, and there were several reasons why, at least according to what we know now about the mound builder beliefs, one is the possibility of reincarnation, and it's very similar to what the Egyptians would do. In Egypt, <coughs> excuse me, there were millions of people living in Egypt. However, they don't find millions and millions of burials. 
the main, almost all of the mummies that they find in Egypt are of the elite and the people that were sent with the elite to helpers, basically, that would be buried with them. And it's with the idea of reincarnation that the body would be reinvigorated and through some sort of transformative process the person would come back. Well, the mound builders believed that in some cases you could reincarnate. And for some people who had special significance, such as these seven to eight-foot skeletons that have been found in Adena-era mounds, mainly in the area of Ohio and West Virginia, Kentucky. Uh, some have been found elsewhere, but they really cluster in West Virginia and Ohio and Kentucky. Uh, those people they probably looked at with the hopes that they would reincarnate. They were very big, and they all were apparently shaman. Uh, all of the archaeological research point, and mainstream archaeological research points to them being shaman because of the artifacts found with them. So we know the shaman were held in high reverence, uh, and they were put in these elaborate tombs, and maybe it was for, for the idea of reincarnation. Uh, but all the others had to be re returned to the earth through cremation, and it has to do with the idea that everything has a spiritual nature. And their idea was we had two souls. One soul was called the life soul, and it was an animation of a physical body through all of the spirit within dirt. Uh, dirt is the most primordial form of spirit. And so dirt dirt actually is used to purify. purify. Uh, it's, a, mm -hmm. it's used in the purification process by a lot of the shaman. But dirt is a primordial form of spirit. And so they had to return this spiritual energy that animated the physical body to the, to the earth after death. And that is one soul. That was called the life soul. Then there is the other soul called the free soul. And the free soul is what most people would think of as a soul. And that is it's energy-based or uh, it's ethereal in a sense. But it has your memories and your personality and your background and so on. And it's the part of you that uh, has a sense of a, being a person or a specific being, and it moves on. And that free soul, mm -hmm. of course, makes a trip to the stars. So they had to reincarnate the physical body to send it, not reincarnate, they had to um, burn the physical body and grind it down into dust to get it back into the earth. So we really haven't found that many skeletal remains of the populace. They were almost all cremated. I think one of the things that, um, because I, you know, come from a spiritual background and in in my studies and stuff like that, one of the things that that, that has always bothered me is that um, when Europeans came here, you know, they they found that the people were primitive and and they they had to give them religion, they had to teach them about God, and the reality the reality is that going back as far as you can go, the people were more spiritual than the Europeans that came, oh, you know, hundreds yeah. of thousands of years later. Um, they, didn't, they didn't have a religion, but they had a spiritual belief that was far more profound than, than religion itself. And, they kept a lot of it secretive, too. Well, and and well, they should because yeah. um, they didn't want to corrupt it by the stupidity of the people that were coming. You know, I mean, 
it, it to me they 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 were more spiritual than 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 the people we have around us today. There, there was, there was a, a, a reverence, you know. Uh, oh there was yeah, a for reverence. everything. Yeah, and and so you know, I've often you know, I I had often pondered, okay, so a lot of these structures and you know Stonehenge and mounds and 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 pyramids and so forth were all. Um, uh, built with um with the stars in mind and it makes it makes perfect sense that the people would look to the stars as though that was a place to ascend to and yes. uh, and so that so that they had a greater understanding and feeling for for actually even the constellations even though they didn't use the the, the zodiac terms that we use today but they had certain constellations that they looked to, and they had stories about them. And it, to me, it, it it it's amazing that though when you think about it, it's not it's not really as strange as it, it may seem sometimes that they had time to look at the sky. And you know, that's one thing that that people today don't take the time to do. Well, they can't do it either because you can't see the Milky Way anymore from most places. I read a yeah. I read an astronomy magazine that said that that in less than ten percent of the of land mass in the world can actually see the Milky Way today because of the ambient light that we have too many too yeah. much light and we've drowned it out. But I I was once asked a question uh, on on the radio that by a caller in who actually it was being a smart Alec um, and. Uh, his question, though, was really interesting, and it, it answers something that you said a minute ago, or I guess maybe it amplifies it, about the spiritual nature. And what this guy said, and I don't want to be as smart-alecky as he was, but he was saying, well, if those Indians were so smart, how come they never invented the wheel? And I, it just immediately came to me. Uh, it actually uh, it was something Edgar Casey said in one of his readings that popped into my head then, and I won't talk about that now, but I'll explain. Uh, I'll give the answer to that uh, because it even it even took the radio host by surprise, and he going, well, yeah, uh, why didn't they invent the wheel? And first of all, we didn't know, we don't know that they didn't because wooden wheels don't last thousands and thousands of years, but of course they weren't using it when they got here. We know in South America that they had the wheel. We found many, many toys that they made that had wheels in South America, mm-hmm. ancient toys, uh, and the same in Central America. However, uh, you might as well ask, why did the Native Americans who were the mound builders in the north, North America, why didn't they build stone pyramids? Why didn't they build massive stone cities like they did in South America? And here's Here's the answer to that and the answer to the wheel thing. Their spiritual nature saw no need for any of that. First of all, we need wheels. We think of wheels being a necessity because we travel great distances every day. Uh, We also carry a lot of stuff around. When we're going to move, if we decide we're going to move from one house to another and we're only going to move five miles, well, that's a major undertaking. We need trucks and because we've got all this stuff. Uh, Mm -hmm. They didn't live that way. They did not look at land as something you could ever own because land had a spiritual nature. They looked at it as something you existed upon and you were a steward of it 
it helped you and you were supposed to help it, but you couldn't own it. And that's one reason why the European settlers took advantage of them because the Indians, you know, they were more than willing to share the land, but they didn't realize at first that all these whites coming in were going to own it and keep them off because they didn't have that concept. Uh, secondly, they didn't accumulate stuff like we do. If they needed to move, they could pack it all and put it on a little, um, a little like almost like a lean-to behind them and drag it away or carry it. They didn't have Triple all yeah. of those objects, and that was by choice. People don't understand this. Even the Hopi, today the Hopi say we need to go back to this. That's part of their move to – or their, their movement to go back to leading a spiritual life. It sounds primitive to people, but when you live like that, you are really tied to the earth. You're tied to living outside and physically touching the earth. You're tied to watching the sky, to interacting with animals, and you are one with the world then, as opposed to almost everybody that's going to listen to this either now or in the future. They're in a room somewhere. They're insulated from the outside. They have electromagnetic fields all around them coming from all the electrical devices and the wires in their room, and we, we're not touching the earth. Almost no, We can go through an entire day and never touch the ground, and most of us don't because we wear shoes that make sure that we're insulated from the ground, and we walk on concrete, and we ride in cars. They didn't believe in that kind of stuff. They didn't see the need for it. They had a different type of philosophy and a different type of spirituality it was different in central america we know they had uh, a need to build these giant pyramids and do many many sacrifices which we know that the north american indians did not do to the extent they did it uh, and in south america they did some very similar things uh, they saw the need to build these massive stone structures. So you have three very unique cultures in the ancient Americas, all of which were based upon whatever their spiritual concepts were. So the spiritual beliefs of the North American Indians, while they had some similarity to those in South and Central America, they were different. They wanted to lead a more simple and more spiritual way of life. Their idea of that was was that water was a type of flowing spiritual energy. Rock is a type of, of condensed or hardened spiritual energy. Crystal is the most pure form of condensed spiritual energy, and all of these things could be used. Trees were elements of spiritual en energy that connected the sky world to the earth, uh, animals were spiritual beings too, and every every single thing on this earth was a part of spiritual energy. And it goes back to their, their whole idea of how it all got created and why it was created. This is something that is not in the book that will probably be in the next one. Uh, and to me it's the most interesting stuff of all about how it all got created. They believe our, our souls come from the... It's not really the sky world. The souls make a trip through the sky world down to this physical world, which they call the middle world. Uh, but there was an, an other world, a world outside of the sky world where the souls came from. 
so they just saw it as a more – they had a real belief system about it. Uh, even when they killed an enemy, they um, often had to do – you know, they, they accumulated the enemy's strength sometimes and some of the en- enemy's characteristics. But they they saw their enemies also as part of this spiritual world that their enemies headed to. So anyway – I'm 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 moving on into a lot of different areas here, but they had a more spiritual <laughs> way of life. It really is that simple. But South and Central well, and, America are slightly different. Well, the Denisovans in in North America, um, when they came in, uh, a lot of um, I'm pretty sure it was your book that that spoke of of how their philosophy was that that you know our spirits moved out and into the heavens and yes. that was part of the reason for the hole in the teepee in the top yes. of the teepee well uh, yeah also I don't, vent- I don't know also vent- ventilation but you know <laughs> yeah they're also in that in that exact uh, belief system they would usually stick a put a stick into the ground or a pole into the ground and aim it toward the north pole uh, or the pole mm-hmm. star and the pole star was the point of entry uh, and the point of exit from the sky world. And they had a belief that all three portions of this universe, which they saw as three pieces, there's the upper world, uh, which are basically the stars, then there is the middle world, which is our Earth, and then there is an underworld. And they were, while while the the most common thing that you hear is they believe we lived on this flat Earth, and that it was suspended on four um, – that at the four corners, the north, south, east, west, there was a rope that came down that attached uh, the earth. Uh, yes, that they depicted that, but that was what they told the populace. That was not in their deepest belief systems. Uh, their deeper beliefs they did not share with the general populace. Those are in the secret societies. Um, some of that I could say, uh, but almost everything that we read about Native Americans and all their stories and the mythology and so on, that is what was told to the general public. That is not what was told to the shaman and the elite uh, and the shaman and the medicine people that were in training. Uh, so it isn't quite – none of it's quite that simple uh, but but in general, they did believe in a three-part world and that we returned to the upper world and went out of it. Well, let's speak for a moment because I think some of the most beautiful stuff in the, in, in your book, I mean, it, it, it's all fascinating, but some of the stuff that just it resonated with me was, you know, speak speak a little bit about the Milky Way and the Path of Souls because that's beautiful stuff. Well, it really is. Their Their idea was and we'll talk the path of souls is basically a return to the sky world and the other world after death. So mm-hmm. when a person dies, a loved one dies, there was a process that they went through and a ritual of preparing the body and they 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 had to send the body back to the sky world. It was a journey, but it could only take place at a certain time of the year. Uh, it was controlled by the elite. It was controlled by certain priests and shaman. 
we actually do know what a lot of the rituals were. They are not in the Denisovan Origins book. That will probably be in the next one that we do. Uh, they Most of the artifacts that have been found in mounds were used in these rituals. Uh, but anyway, okay, so the, the whole idea was this. Uh, on the night of the winter solstice, and it didn't have to be on that exact night, but that would be the ideal. So it's basically a month before and after the winter solstice. They would uh, watch the sunset from one specific spot, say within a mound complex or a geometric earthwork, where the shaman and the chief could stand in an area and they could point to a specific mound that had probably had a temple on it, and you would watch the sunset right directly behind that temple. And so then it got dark. So the people who were involved with the ceremony would be the living relatives of whoever the dead souls were that they were going to send back. The days before this, they would have prepared the bodies. They would have made a mass, prepared a massive bonfire, just all the wood, and the bodies would be on the wood waiting. So when the sun came down, they would all move into the sacred space, probably a geometric earthwork, which would be uh, probably a square. Uh, that's Most of the sites that we've identified had a square around them. Uh, the square would be made from walls of earth that would be oh, 5 to 15 feet high. And there would be mounds inside. There would usually be one important mound where you would stand and you would see that sunset. Then you would immediately turn your attention to the east. And there would be from the same mound an alignment over another mound toward the east that had another temple on the top. And you would see what they called the hand constellation. The hand constellation was Orion and particularly Orion's belt, and what they saw was a hand in the sky, the palm of a hand, a severed hand. And that severed hand had an eye in it, at least that's what the, it's usually been depicted as. It's not really an eye, it's an ogee, and it's spelled O-G-E-E. -E. And ogee means a slit or a portal. And so that portal is Orion's nebula, which is a very fuzzy nebula known as Messier 42. The Mayans had the same belief system, and they called Messier 42 or Orion's nebula, they called it Shilbaba. And it was the first part of the journey. It's like uh, Andrew Collins flew back to England today. Well, he flew from, Virgi from Norfolk, Virginia uh, to New York. And then he's going from New York to Lisbon, and he's probably not even in Lisbon yet. And he's going from Lisbon to Gatwick in, in London. So where would you say that he's going? If you're in Virginia Beach, where, where are you going, Andrew? He's going, okay, I'm going to go to uh, um, New York. But that's not his final destination. So the first part of this journey, multi-leg journey, is going to Orion. But it had to be done in the early morning. So the next part of this ceremony, so we're about roughly the sun would set around 6 o'clock at night. Then they would turn their attention and look at this hand constellation in the eastern sky, and that would be roughly 7 o'clock they would see it. Then they would turn their attention to another area in the sky toward the northwest, 
and that from the same mound they would view the Cygnus constellation, which is depicted as a giant bird, uh, a raptor bird in particular, sinking into the horizon. So from one mound directly across another, you would watch the the last thing you'd see is the star Deneb, and the star Deneb is the final portal. At that point, they probably lit the fires because that's roughly 11 to 11.30 at night, and they began these this ceremony, ritual, and this is all being done by the main priests uh, and the shaman of the tribe who are dressed in full regalia, uh, this iron hand, all the uh, all these things that I'm talking about were they had symbolic objects, objects that had the symbols carved and engraved on them. One very famous one, are, or famous artifacts, are these pallets. They're like flat. They look like a frisbee, but they're much bigger. Uh, they're actually usually sta- sandstone, and they're quite flat on both sides, about an inch thick. Uh, they're like a big pallet, a stone pallet, and they have carved on them an eye in a hand, a palm of the hand with an eye, and often there's snakes around them. Sometimes it's got two twisted skulls around them too. Uh, that was used as a table. All this is known now. So they would set that table up, and on top of that table they would put these other sacred objects a bowl that had a skull on it and another bowl that had a skull, the same skull, but it had what looked like fire coming out of the mouth. And these are symbols engraved on these bowls. So the the skull, just the plain skull, represents the life soul. And the life soul has to be returned to the earth. And then another bowl had this same skull, but it showed fire coming out of the mouth. And the fire coming out of the mouth is the free soul being released from the body. And the free soul is the soul that makes the trip. Uh, They also had artifacts, these bowls uh, and cups, actually, that had these raptor birds on them. And all of these had uh, certain drinks, uh, certain substances in them that were used during these rituals. So they then started this massive ritual um, when they watched Cygnus set. They would begin the bonfires. There was dancing, uh, rhythmic dancing. There were drums beating. There were whistles being blown. They probably used stimulants that kept them up because the final part of this ceremony took place at about 4 a.m. And at 4 a.m., that hand constellation had gone across the sky from the east, and now the fingers were pointing down the palm. The the three belt stars of Orion were the severed wrist. And if you actually look at Orion, you can actually easily form a hand out of uh, Rigel and some of the other stars in it. And you can see Messier 42 if you're in a dark enough spot. It's Really, it's kind of reddish blue when you look at it. Uh, And they believed then in the early morning they would release that free soul and it made a leap to that portal, to that ogi, which is, again, Orion's Nebula. Immediately then thereafter, the sun would rise. You would see this hand going down below the horizon, and that would end the ceremony. By that time, the fires would have died down, and that ended that part of the ceremony. The next night when uh, 
they realize that, okay, the sky makes a tra- it traverses through the underworld. It goes all the way through the underworld, but the soul was tucked in to this ogi. It, was, it made a safe journey through the underworld then. This is very similar to Egyptian beliefs, by the way. So it came up again on the east the next night, and as soon as it was visible, the soul hopped out of this ogi and got on the Milky Way. And it began a trip to the north then. And the Milky Way was called the River of Souls, the Path of Souls, the Wolf Trail. Uh, there's a lot of other names for it, but they all imply the same thing, and that is they are souls that are returning to the source. They're all going. They're all making a trip to the north. Uh, along this pathway, there are a lot of trials and tribulations. Uh, there are various things and, and elements that they encounter. Uh, and depending on the tribe, there were slightly different elements uh, that they would talk about, dogs and a log in the wa- a log that they had to cross. But eventually they reached a split in the Milky Way. And this split actually exists. They called it a fork sometimes or a split. And right there, there was a huge bird, a raptor bird. And that is what most of the mound builders believed it was, a huge raptor bird. And that raptor bird was a judge. And some of the tribes called it a brain smasher. But this judge judged the individual and how well they handled the trials while they were on the path in the sky. And they also judged the person of how well they served their tribe how well they lived their life in accordance with their spiritual beliefs, how well they served their family, and how honest they were, and so on. So it went beyond uh, what we would look at as a good life. It's like, did they pray over all the animals they killed? Did they pray over the food that they pulled out of the ground? Because that's killing something too. All of those Mm -hmm. things were involved in it. And then the judge could actually cast them back, their soul back to earth to be reincarnated, cast them back to earth to correct their wrongs and give them another chance. It could judge them as unworthy and throw them into the underworld. Well, the underworld was ruled by a giant snake, by the way. Didn't I really haven't talked about that. Or it could allow them to pass. And if they passed and they chose the right way then, there was a final choice, they then got to the final ogi in the sky, which was a portal. It's believed to be the star Deneb, which is the brightest of the Cygnus uh, stars. And it's also, that star is located right at the fork of the Milky Way. It's in a really prominent place. And from there they would traverse to the other world, and that's the land of the ancestors, where the ancestors were. There's not a great deal written about that other world, but there is some that we know about it. Now, the importance of this belief is and where it came from. So you have these two elements. You have Orion that plays a really important role, and you have the Cygnus constellation. And we know that they that it went to the north, and that's the way the soul made, moved. We also know that uh, this is pretty much a worldwide belief now. This has only been uncovered for the pa- in the past couple decades. The Siberian nomads that are still over there today believe in it. Uh, Andrew has uncovered the same belief in uh, Turkey and in Gobekli Tepe, and it's very likely that even at Malta, uh, part of Italy, they believe mm-hmm. the same thing. Uh, but it probably goes back some 18,000 years ago. 
And 18,000 years ago, because of the precession of the equinoxes, we know that Deneb, the brightest star of the Cygnus constellation, was the North Pole star then. It was the imperishable star. That's what the Egyptians called the North Pole star. The stars that never moved, they never disappeared. They were always there. And all the other stars rotated around it every night. They'd go from the east to the west, the east to the west, but that star was always there, and they saw it as a portal. And to some extent, that is why even today they have this pole that they stick into the ground and they aim it toward the North Pole Star. If you had turned around, and you can tell all this today, if you've got a modern computer program, like uh, Starry Night Pro is the one I use, but there's several others. You can plug in dates, and you can go anywhere in the world. If you know the GPS, go to the site, plug the date in, and you can look at exactly what this what the sky looked like back then because it changes. But back then, Deneb was the North Pole Star, and the Cygnus constellation was seen every night in that far northern sky. And the Milky Way was seen every night directly overhead. But if you turned to the south and you looked all the way down the Milky Way and went all the way to the south, what you saw then was you saw the three belt stars of Orion and Messier 42 hovering right above the southern horizon, which is astonishing. It, it was exactly to the south, and Cygnus was all the way to the north, uh, and rather incredible, actually. And we believe that is when this belief system developed. Uh, it could have developed as long ago as 25,000 years because Cygnus was almost the North Pole star then. Uh, and it just they just simply retained the belief. And over the thousands and thousands of years, as Cygnus moved to the northwest over time, and as, at the same time Cygnus went to the northwest, Orion moved to the uh, southeast. They just they, the whole thing just rotated. Now it'll eventually go back to where Cygnus goes back to be the North Pole star, uh, and it's in I think it's another eight thousand years that occurs, um, but I'm not certain about that. Uh, in any event, that is the idea of the path of souls. Uh, it is incorporated into numerous mound sites. At the end of the of the book, uh, Denise of an Origins, uh, which is I wrote the end of the book, uh, there mm -hmm. is a large section about um, showing various mound sites and how these rituals took place, in particular how the alignments were made from one mound to another or one point within a geometric earthwork to another. Uh, and a smart person can sit there and look at this and figure out exactly what the movements of the people were through this ceremony that occurred around the winter solstice. Well, so that's know, a, it, that's your explanation of it. Um, it it I, beats the I heck have, out of traditional funerals, and it makes uh, a lot yes. more sense. Yes, and we believe this is how they retained a lot of the the power over the masses, why they would willingly build these these massive mound complexes, why they would willingly build these enormous geometric earthworks that just defy description. The largest geometric earthworks in the world are in North America. They're here. They, they're in Ohio. Newark, Ohio is the largest geometric earthworks in the world. I mean, people just don't know. It's incredible. Somebody, Andrew Collins, well, yeah. uh, we brought Andrew over here. It was, I think it was 2006 
uh, we went to the Newark Earthworks with him. Andrew at the time, he and his wife, uh, then wife, were living in the middle of Avebury, the largest stone circle in the world that has a gigantic hinge or a wall around it, a wall of earth. And when mm-hmm. we took them to the Newark Earthworks, they were astounded. And he said, my God, he had no idea. He'd read about it. But you cannot imagine what these are like unless you visit them. You can read about them. You can see pictures. But the only way you can comprehend this stuff is to go and take a look. And you will go, oh, my God, I had no idea. So it, I really encourage people to visit mound sites. I really wish they would. We need to be more well, – yeah. yeah, we need to recognize our own stuff here. We've got some incredible stuff in North America. It's just people just don't know. Well, I think that's what what boggles my mind. So that you know, and and the I I believe it's the New Jersey site that you have the 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 graphic of, and I mean it was massive, um, bigger than you know so many other sites that that you know okay were stoned so that this was this was dirt so that. You know, not as impressive, I guess, but oh, but it the is fact every bit. Of, I, you, you mean Newark in Ohio, New, Newark? Uh, it is yes. more impressive to Andrew and his wife. And I told you, they lived. They literally lived in the middle of Avebury, which is larger than Stonehenge. They had a stone circle in there that began in their backyard, and they oh, were wow. more impressed. They were not necessarily more impressed. They were overwhelmed with Newark because it dwarfs anything in England. There is a mound at Cahokia, Illinois, that it, that covers 13 acres. That is bigger than the base of the Great Pyramid at Giza. The mound is 10 stories tall. It's 100 feet tall. It has a flat top. It's called a truncated pyramid. It's built just like a pyramid. In 1987, 4,000 people were on top of that mound at the same time. In it is a huge stone chamber that is some 45 feet by 30 feet and some 20 feet tall. It's never been dug into, and they probably never will be able to go in and look at it because this this was discovered after the laws were changed. But there's a huge stone chamber in it. I kind of joke with people and say that's where a UFO is. That's where the evidence of ancient aliens is in Monk's Mound at Cahokia, Illinois. But standing on top, and standing on top of that mound, you can see downtown St. Louis, which is amazing. It's so big. Well, Monk's Mound is Monk's Mound is is profound. Uh, among yes. other things, all of the different colors of earth that that went into the construction of it um, were profound. Yes. Um, it is. It, there it, are other sites in America that are just as impressive. It's just there's so many. Uh, and most people, when you say Indian Mound, what comes to almost everybody's mind is that they, they, they drop the dead body, laid it in the ground, and then they covered it with earth, and that's a mound. And that is not <sighs> what I'm talking about. There were some of those, yes, but there were these massive conical mounds, and it means like a cone at the top, that were 80 feet tall. That had that had diameters of hundreds of feet, and just gigantic, very steep sides. A lot of these still exist. There are loads of truncated pyramids. Uh, Moundville, Alabama, is a site that has 20 large, perfectly formed truncated pyramids around a massive plaza area. Uh, you can see from my, from miles from the tallest one. And this is a place where they did those Path of Souls rituals. 
people just don't appreciate how many there were. And I understand it. I do understand it. But part of that is it goes back to the very beginnings of American history and archaeology. We downplay how how impressive some of the things the Native Americans built because they were they were shown or depicted to be savages who deserved to be pushed off the land and who deserved to be killed off and put in ever increasing smaller areas that had bad land. Uh, a lot of them mm-hmm. were put. I love this about the badlands. A lot of people think the badlands were. Uh, named after uh, rustlers and and uh, criminals and so on that lived there, but they're not. It was it was the Indians called it bad land because you couldn't grow anything on it. The bad mm-hmm. lands were called bad lands because the land was bad; nothing would grow in it, and a lot of them were pushed into there. But by de- by ignoring all of these massive earthworks that that incorporate the movements of the moon and the sun and the stars, and by pretty much ignoring all these massive mound complexes that are all over the eastern half of the United States, it allows us to continue to degrade Native Americans or just not look at them as impressive as they really were uh, and to look at their accomplishments like they mean nothing. And well, I under- it's not true. I understand, I understand why, you know, they, they for the most part – are, are burial sites, and, and you don't desecrate graves, but at the same time there is historical relevance to them. Is there any way ever to to get to the point where where they can be um, very reverently looked into? I mean, it, it's a shame to have history that can't be touched. So well, let's explain what you mean by that. Uh, you're talking about the laws. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. So up until 1990, I got into Indian mounds. Yeah, I got into Indian mounds around 1983, uh, and I tell the story of how that happened in some other books. But anyway, uh, the first mound site I went to is one in Memphis called Chukalisa. I had never been to it, and it was a dream that forced my wife and I to go there. Uh, and Chukalisa used to have hundreds of school children taken there every year, and they loved it because they'd go in. And there was a uh, large burial mound that had roughly, I, I would say it had 50 skeletons in it along with lots of artifacts. And so you could go into this burial mound. They had excavated it, and they had all the skeletal remains and artifacts in situ, in, in situ, which means left in place. So they had it all covered. They had a building built on top of it, and you could walk through and see all these skeletons. We also visited Moundville, Alabama at the same time, the same thing, skeletons. I put a picture of one of them in on the back cover of the book Path of Souls uh, that I took mm-hmm. in Moundville. Uh, there, were, there were museums all over the country in the 80s that had uh, Native American skeletons and, on display in situ. Well, mm-hmm. in 1989 and 90, that changed. Uh, there were two laws passed. One of the laws specifically related to the Smithsonian, since it was uh, it's a quasi-federal government agency, and the other law applied to every other museum and academic school or any anywhere that had ever received a single federal dollar or ever would receive a federal dollar, and they were required to one not display any Native American bones 
not display any burial artifacts at all. And not only to do that, but to uh, contact, make an effort to contact Native American tribes, get someone to claim these as part of their ancestry, the objects and the skeletal remains, then repatriate them, which means return them to the Native American tribes, and then they would either burn or rebury uh, all of the artifacts and the skeletal remains. And there was a law called NAGPRA that came in 1990, N-A-G-P-R-A, which, stands, which stood for Native American, um, Native American Grave and Repatriation Act, uh, which meant they had to be returned. So suddenly all these museums that were displaying the Native American bones and the skeletons in place had to quit. They had to get rid of all of their burial remains like the bowls I talked about and all of the incredible artifacts that they'd found with burials. Uh, all of the giant skeletons that we've talked about in the books, uh, those were not on display anyway. The few of those that remained were the Smithsonian and never even cataloged. They were never removed from their original um, boxes that they were shipped to them in. All of that was returned to Native American tribes. I contacted the Smithsonian a few years ago, and they told me that the only thing they have left of anything from the Americas that are skeletal remains, they had approximately 300 pieces, all of which came from South America. And they're keeping them all in a uh, climate-controlled room, and they're desperate to get rid of them because it costs them a fortune to keep them. They can't get any tribe to claim them. But everything else they had, every single skeleton, every skull, everything they had that was Native American was returned to Native American tribes and was subsequently reburied or burned. So it's all gone. And the laws do not allow them to dig into any burial mounds uh, or anything controlled by Native Americans. Now, Cahokia, for example, is run by the, the Ohio Hist not the Ohio, it is the uh, Illinois Historical Society, and it's a World Heritage Site. And you, But they cannot dig into the mound unless they go through a whole bunch of permissions, and one of those permissions has to come from the Native American tribe that claims that area. Uh, in, in Ohio, we were allowed to go into a horseshoe-shaped enclosure in Portsmouth, Ohio, because the then mayor of Portsmouth and his wife were very interested in what we were doing and, and tours we were conducting into Portsmouth to see the stuff there. Uh, and they actually got permission from a tribe in Oklahoma that controls the Portsmouth, Ohio earthworks, the Native American earthworks in Portsmouth, Ohio that are in public parks are controlled by a Native American tribe in Oklahoma. So they had to get written permission from them to have the gates opened up and allow us, they, they actually mowed the area for us to go in uh, and hold a meditation. And we had, we had some Native Americans with us that did a few rituals when we were in there. Uh, so, no, I don't have any hopes that that's going to happen in our lifetime. But forever is a long time, and ever is a long mm -hmm. time. Uh, so I suspect sooner or later some, there are some more of these Adena mounds that I'm certain have within them a shaman that is buried, and that shaman is seven to eight feet tall. I would love, I have offered 
some archaeologists uh, that I will pay for the genetic testing of any of these uh, large skeletons that we know are removed from mounds, if they can find any. Uh, there is an archaeologist that uh, is interested in doing this with me. Uh, but, of course, they don't have any money, but I told them I'll pay for the genetic testing, uh, and I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm waiting. So that's where that stands. I do not think it will happen anytime soon, uh, and the laws here are dramatically different from anywhere else. But partly, it's partly due to the attitude that archaeologists had. They pretty much ignored the mythology, and they ignored the tribal ideas and beliefs uh, they treated artifacts and burials um, really without feeling, without reverence. And imagine if somebody sta- imagine if somebody started going into the cemetery where your mother and father or grandmother, or if you had kids, they gone in there and they're digging in there, and uh, they're going to put them on display. They're going to measure them and uh, put them on display. How would you feel about that? And most of us yeah, wouldn't th- feel, yeah, we wouldn't like it. Yeah, but you know uh, they 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 did de- they destroyed and erased history too, and I think yes. that there's there's something to be said for that. But you know, with with the the kind of um, oh gosh, the lidar that we've got, the ground penetrating radar yes. that we've got. I mean, with with a lot of those technologies, which which you know they they hop ahead, you know unbelievably as far as you know what they can do um would something like that that there was no no um nothing that was dug would if the technology was there would it be allowed to to just sort of electronically go in and look and see well, what was there you know that that's a good thought that's how they that's how this stone structure in uh, monk's mound at cahokia was really measured. Uh, Initially, uh, Monk's Mound is so big, and of course it's an earthen mound, uh, and because so many people go up there, part of it started eroding, and for years they've done stuff to keep it from eroding. But what they were going to do is they were going to put a drainage pipe down in it and out of the side, out of the bottom. So they were trying to install a drain, and so they were drilling this uh, horizontal pipe in, and they hit stone which they thought, okay, it's just a piece of stone. But it broke a drill bit off. So (laughs) they pulled the drill out, and they put another drill bit on it, and they drilled in, and I believe, the best I can recall now, they went through roughly 12 feet of stone, uh, and they had to stop. Uh, And Mm -hmm. so they had no idea what what in the world this was. Now, they actually hit uh, a side is what they did with the drill bit, and they were drilling through the through a side, uh, like a side wall. But they weren't going straight through the wall. They were following the wall. Uh, so they were mm-hmm. going lo- long ways. So they did bring in uh, ground-penetrating radar, and that's how they discovered what it was. And there's actually a structure sitting on top of a structure. And when I say structure, I mean a stone structure, very, very large. Uh, however, mm-hmm. they can't see what's in it. We don't have the ability to see what's in it. Now, I would what it's like what we did in the Bahamas. We have the technology with um oh, different types of cameras, remote cameras that we can use to where if they could get inside, you could take the remote camera in and it would have its own lighting system. 
but that doesn't necessarily give you a really good view. And I'm not sure – you'd still need to get permission from Native Americans to do that. But LIDAR only shows you the actual contours of the ground. Uh, Ground-penetrating mm-hmm. radar, when it hits the rock, that's it. Uh, and it can't show you, for example, a skeleton inside of a tomb and measure the size of the skeleton. But we know that uh, a lot of the Adena mounds uh, in Ohio and Kentucky and uh, West Virginia that have never been dug into uh, definitely have large tombs within them. There's one here in Tennessee where I live called Pinson that has a huge mound that probably was an Adena mound, uh, and it probably has a huge uh, some sort of a stone chamber within it and a burial chamber. Uh, and the, the site archaeologist actually told me he's certain of that too, but they can't go into it. They can't look at it. Uh, so the laws well, may change. Technology may get better, uh, and it may very well develop to where we can see inside. But I doubt that's going to happen in my lifetime. Uh, but it might. Well, well, um, <laughs> uh, you you just hit a, a well. Let me see. A number of years ago, I I did a whole series of of things with Bill Brown, who is yes. an archaeologist. It just it, and we put together a group of people that did remote viewing for him for um, a lot of his sites that were in Egypt. Yes. And I'm very aware a of large what he was group, doing. Okay, so we had a large group of people uh, all around the world, and I, I took them in meditation, and then I did remote viewing with them for these sites to give him information. And um, he had to drop out. He he didn't he he didn't continue with us but i kept going with the group and so we then went into pyramids and and different sites around the country and and one of the sites we went into was monk's mound ah and if you're curious or if anyone's curious on my website there is a a place where there's a a remote viewing um button you can push it takes you to the different sites we went into you can play the uh there, there's information on the site but you can also play the the meditation that takes you remotely into the site and leads you through the inside of it so hmm. uh, I'm, I'm stunned <laughs> So, and the meditations, you know, I kept them short, so they're, they're only like 15 to 20 minutes long, and there are places where people could leave comments about what they saw, what they felt, and what they, so that, so that um, we did uh, the first emperor's um, tomb, which, of course, they won't let them mm-hmm. dig that up, so we went remotely into that, we, we did the Antarctic, we did the moon, we did um, a number of e- Egyptian-type one and and I'm going to start the group up again because I want to get into the Darren Kuyu um, uh, complex in Turkey and and mm-hmm. of course go Blackley Tepe and and so and what happened with almost every one we did the Bosnian pyramid too um, but with every uh, remote viewing um, meditation that we did as a group. Um, People found that because they were taken out of body in order to do the remote viewing, that, that we were able to sort of um, see interdimensionally as well. Very so, 
Yeah. <laughs> I, I would uh, please do uh, publish, get some of those results. I'd love to know what the results are that people saw at, at Monk's Mound. Uh, I'd love to it's see it. It's right on my pension. website. Okay, it's, I will. I will go there. You just, uh, you just go soon. to the remote viewing button, and they're they're all there, um, and they're there so that pe- people can, you know, go into the meditation and take and do it whenever they want to, and then leave their comments. Um, okay. I, I I I would say you know avoid the first couple because we were just getting our our legs our, our feet wet with it, and you know telephones rang and lawnmowers did their thing and and. But but from the third one on, it was I think it went reasonably smoothly. I I found that so long as I was talking, people were able to flow. But if I stopped talking and gave people a chance to um, kind of go out on their own, the, uh, everybody said, "Oh, everything stopped." When you stopped talking, everything stopped. So so after I think the second second or third meditation, I I talked all the way through the meditation in order to give people to something to hold on to, but. The Bosnian Pyramid one was fascinating. The Arctic one was fascinating. Had nothing to do with Nazis, by the way. Um, well, yeah, I hope but, so. But, but, um, but the Monk's Mound one was very interesting. Hmm. So, I will so, have a look um, at that. Yep, it's right on the front page of my website. You just go uh-huh. into the remote viewing section, and you can find the Monk's Mound one. Um, but I want to get back to the, the Denisovan because... Um, you know, when I found out that they were haploid group X, of course, I went right to my um, 23andMe to find out what haploid group I was. Unfortunately, I'm not one of them. But well, I'm um, not either. What What are you, by the way? A J something. Oh, okay, okay. Um, I I have a lot of apparently I have a lot of Neanderthal, Neanderthal um, DNA. So do I. Yeah. Um, but um, but I think that that what. I, I would love people to understand is that that our lineage that we come from um, was not what what we have been taught it was. That those people way back forty thousand, fifty thousand, a hundred thousand years were very much like us. Um, in the you know the environment certainly has has you know changed how we react to it but the denisovans among other things it was found that they could they could survive at high altitudes and in very cold climates better than um a lot of other better than most of us could now yes they had that genetics built within them uh and there is a there are genetics that do that just like there's genetics for tallness and smartness i mean iq is pretty much uh genetic in nature but i'm Mm -hmm. sorry go ahead no, but but it's it's sort of like I I want people to understand that these were not stupid people. These were very intelligent people, and and extraordinarily intelligent because they survived in an environment that would we would not be able to at all. That is correct. So that so that so that they had, um, and what I think is fabulous is because they didn't have books, so they had probably memories that far exceed our memories. Today, and it goes back to a time when there was possibly even a group or tribe memory that they were all able to tap into because um, because that's the only way they preserved their history. 
Well, I can I can tell you that we have an arrogance today that we've always had it, I suspect, but I you know, we notice today more than any other time. But if you talk to people today, they say, "Oh, we're all so smart today." Why? Because we can Google something. Uh, okay, so we use computers that makes us smart, right? No. Uh, most <laughs> people cannot build a house. Most people could not build a computer. Try to build a computer from scratch. Try to build a television from scratch. Try to build an automobile from scratch. Try to build a cart from scratch. Try to domesticate a dog, a wolf or a wild horse. Try to see how good you can do that. And the truth mm-hmm. is, we're not any smarter. <clears throat> we have simply built, our our world is built out of the accomplishments of 100,000 years or more, a couple hundred thousand years of people just as smart as us, slowly but surely learning to do things, learning to master the environment and develop things, and then they simply pass it along. A modern computer mm-hmm. was built from Oh, my God, from the very beginning, uh, they started doing it with mathematics. Andrew, uh, one of his talks about the Denisovans, he really talks about their ability with mathematics, which I don't talk about it because he loses me when he starts talking about numbers and their Mm -hmm. ability as a savant. We know that they had a type of uh, autism that is within their genes, and they probably had certain savant abilities, which can be an advantage in certain circumstances. For most of us, we think a savant is somebody who's stupid. If They're autistic, but they're stupid. But a savant, there are some people who can sit down at a piano, having never played it before, having never seen it before, you can put them at a piano, and they can play. There are some people you can sit at a piano and all they'd have to do is hear a piece of music and they can duplicate it perfectly the first time. They are called Mm -hmm. savants. There are people that can do incredible mathematics in their head. Now, they're not calculating like I might. If If you ask somebody, if I ask people some simple mathematical equation like what's 13 times 12, uh, almost anybody listening to this can work it out. But a savant yeah. doesn't even have to work it out. They just know. And it's not because they've mm-hmm. memorized it. It just happens. It's the way their brain is wired. But they can do things that are absolutely incredible. So, And they all have certain characteristic abilities. They can't all do the same thing. But most of them, most savants have one very unique ability. And it could be music, could be science could be numbers, mathematics, could be a lot of different things. Uh, but Andrew's, Andrew's research through the genetics of the Denisovans has shown that they carried savant uh, and autistic DNA in them. We may have actually inherited autism from the Denisovans. That has yet to be proven, but it is very likely since we know that the, the savant characteristics in our DNA – or autism, it's the same stuff they have in their DNA. And we know they wow. interbred with both the Neanderthals and what we call modern humans long ago. So it's very possible that modern savants have a great deal of Denisovan DNA within them. That remains to be proven, uh, but it's, it, it, it's definitely a hypothesis that's worth testing. Uh, and I suspect there's geneticists that are, in fact, doing that right now. 
Uh, and that's well, not just suggested by him. It's been other geneticists that have said it. Well, people who are who have a large amount of, of haploid X, they're clustered in lots of places. And, yes. and um, one of the places they're clustered is um, Canada, North America. I mean... Yep. It's, it's uh, in the. They are mainly Native American groups, uh, and the and the current Native Americans. Uh, they are primarily in the traditional mound building areas of the north and northeast. Um, some of the Ohio mounds. Uh, they have tested the DNA. Uh, of the skeletons removed from there. Some of the mounds, 50% of the skeletons removed had haplogroup X, uh, which is a type of mitochondrial DNA. And haplogroup X, oddly, was the fifth one found. And they were naming them all ABCD. It was all, the, all of this mitochondrial DNA research started with Native Americans. It was funded by the National Institutes of Health and it was an attempt to try and find out why the Pima Indian tribe had such a rate of obesity and uh, diabetes, and also the Blackfoot tribe, they had certain genetic disorders. So they were testing the human DNA in them, and they also decided to test the mitochondria within our cells. Mitochondria carry their own DNA. And there's no way we'll have enough time to explain this, but what they found, surprisingly, was that uh, the Native Americans they tested had four diff very unique types of mitochondrial DNA, which they're surprised because the mitochondria are ac actually a type of vestigial bacteria uh, that are mm -hmm. involved in diabetes and they're involved in insulin and glucose, uh, which is sugar, and they actually produce the energy that our body uses. Uh, they consume the, the sugar molecules uh, that's given to them by the insulin, and then the byproduct of that is their, or actually their excrement, is ATP, which is the sub substance we use for energy. But they called the mm -hmm. four types they found A, B, C, and D, and they tested Siberian nomads, and they found A, C, and D in them and said, aha, that proves they all came from Siberia. Uh, they later found the B was in Taiwan and in the South Pacific uh, Native Americans in South America are very heavily have the type B, obviously. There's not many mm -hmm. Bs in North America. There are some. Uh, and then they found one that didn't match anything, and they called it X. That was the fifth one found. Uh, well, and you know, then I'm they really, found... I'm sorry? I, I'm, I'm very grateful. I'm grateful they weren't so arrogant to have called it Z, because yes. obviously there's going to be something after X. Yep, well, they worked their way through the whole alphabet then, but haplogroup X, they named it X as in X the unknown, uh, which is, I mean, an amazing coincidence since it's still the only one that remains unknown. They do not know where it came from. It has no source like the others. Uh, mitochondrial DNA actually is like a time machine. Uh, they're able to go back in time and calculate where it mutated, and all of these, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, all the way uh, almost into Z, there's 40-some different uh, variations of it. Uh, they're all, uh, they're mutations. They, they're mutated forms of this, this type of bacteria that we carry in our cells. Uh, mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a maternal DNA. It only comes from your mother. 
All men carry it from their mother. We don't pa- a man doesn't pass it along to his offspring. It comes from the female. Uh, and that's made it very, very interesting. Uh, in years ago, back uh, now, it's 20 years ago. Uh, actually, it was more than that now. It's 21 years ago when haplogroups X was discovered, and I read where it was being found at the time. We wrote that haplogroup X was only being found in all the places that Edgar Casey said that the survivors of Atlantis went. And we said if there is such a thing as Atlantean DNA, uh, it is haplogroup X. And that was back yeah. when it was first discovered. And of course, now loads of people say that. Uh, that remains to be proven, and it probably can't be proven. But it's interesting speculation nonetheless. Oh, absolutely. No, well, I, that, I just, you know, I'm, I'm so fascinated by, uh, you know, and, and I highly encourage people to pick this book up. It's, it covers a tremendous amount of material, but it isn't, you know, a 900-page book that you can look at and say it's a better doorstop than a book. Um, <laughs> but I, it, it's, it's a fascinating read. I, I had gotten through almost half of it, and then I thought, why am I not charting this all down to to see where the different um, groups were developed and evolved and and you know there's a, there's a family tree here, and and I wish I wish you guys had drawn out the family tree. Um, yes, I understand. It, it, I will pass that along to Andrew. I'll make that his job. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll yeah, do that. Maybe would... we'll do that in the next one. Which I do have a really good doorstop book, and that is my Mound Encyclopedia. That thing is a monster. It it makes a great doorstop, but I think it's a great book too. Uh, and the reason that I even mentioned that, that of all the books that I've done, which is now some 69 that I have in print, uh, and about about half of those uh, are workbooks that are used in treatment. Uh, but nevertheless, mm-hmm. they're books. But that is my favorite book, uh, and it's what I planned on doing starting in 1983. It was the Mound Encyclopedia. And even this stuff uh, with the Denisovan Origins book is a outgrowth from that mound encyclopedia because in 1983 I swore that I was going to do a uh, an illustrated encyclopedia of the remaining Native American mounds and try and make it simple enough uh, for people to – well, I wanted to document it, and I made that promise. And mm-hmm. so I've generated many, many books out of that. But Denise of an Origins and this Path of Souls idea is an outgrowth of that book. Uh, so that's wow. that's my plug for that book. Uh, and if anybody's okay, going to well. buy any of my books, that's the one that I'd love for them to see. And that's the one well, that will probably last beyond my life. Well, I will also plug your Atlantis book, which I thought was just absolutely fabulous. Yeah, um, we're 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 di- we're down to um, about a minute, and um, you've you've happily given you know your plugs that I was going to let you give. Um, <laughs> I I you know we we haven't really even covered so much of the material that is so very important, but but you know at least it's a start. I think it's important that people who listen understand that that we really and truly don't know our history. And this book gives you um, material to grow from, um, to stir your curiosity and to move you into a better understanding of what actually is the history of 
um, North America, and and it will frustrate you because you can't prove a lot. But but even so, it will it will give you a better understanding of the richness that this land holds for us. Um, I have to thank you so much for being here. I think this has been so enlightening for me, and I hope for other people because. Um, you know, you're a true joy to talk to, and I will make sure that um, I talk further with you. So thank you again. All right. Well, hey, thank and you so much for having me, and happy Columbus Day to you and all your listeners. Because <laughs> we would you still too. be here. So if it wasn't Columbus, it would have been somebody else sooner or yeah, later. Yeah, that's very true. Yeah, that's my point. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> well, okay thanks so again. good night, Drake. Uh, all right. I know you'll be in touch with me, and uh, tell Mr. Mark Eddy I said hello, too. I will do that. Thank okay. you, everybody, for being here. Good night, and tune in tomorrow night because Mark has a great show there, too. Good night. <laughs>